Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where myth and misconception is executed on Tower Green. And welcome to our third special episode recording from the Gloucester History Festival in the heart of historic Gloucester. Joining me today is historian and author of Young, Damned and Fair, The Life of Catherine Howard, and coming in December, The Palace, 500 Years of History at Hampton Court, Gareth Russell. Gareth, welcome to History Rage. Oh, Paul, I am so happy to be here. Feeling angry? Feeling pleasantly infuriated, yeah, the more I think about it. Excellent, excellent. So, before we dive into the rage that you've come to us with today, then, I just wonder if you could start us off with... First of all, a short history of you and your background and how you ended up in the field that you're in. Sure. So I grew up in Northern Ireland and went to school there and applied and got into Oxford, although I was not someone who always had Oxford in my sightline. And to give you an insight into the power of anger, the reason I applied was that in front of the whole class, one of my teachers pointed at me and said, you know, you could have been an Oxbridge candidate with your GCSE results. They wouldn't even look at you. And I thought, oh, fuck that. So I went to the library that afternoon and started the application. And so it was the um, majestic power of spite that first propelled me across the uh, the Irish Sea. So yeah, I studied um, history at Oxford for three years. And then a postgraduate at Queen's in Belfast, where I specialised more in medieval history. And whilst I was there, I started, uh, I came to my thesis supervisor with this idea so I wanted to do the Queen's household and because at that point it really hadn't it was it hadn't really been done and I said I'd love to do it kind of from say the 1440s with Margaret of Anjou through to the 1540s with Catherine Parr and Dr Davis said with no breath taken that's insane uh you have to pick something short and focused for a postgraduate dissertation you need detailed not broad scope to get good marks why don't you pick a queen who wasn't there for a very long length of time? Henry VIII provided us with quite a few of them. <laughs> so I, I looked at by, by really just a process of um, elimination. I went for Catherine Howard because she had been on tour for a bit. So you could do the household while it was traveling, when it was formed and when it fell apart. And I was doing a bit of blog work and things. And another professor who'd written a biography of Mary Todd Lincoln that Spielberg used, said, there's an agent in New York, I think you should talk to her, because um, I think there's something in your thesis here that could be a book. So it was later the basis of, uh, I, t- I took all the, you know, the dull academic language out and, and made it a yeah. proper biography. Made, made it something that somebody would want to read but, rather yes. than a PhD thesis, yeah, which made, nobody will made, read. Made, yeah, absolutely. Made it something that you want to, you could operate heavy machinery after reading was, was the goal. So that was really the start of my proper career. I'd done a few sort of smaller books before, but to be a full-time author, it was Catherine Howard and Postmasters. And I alternate, I, every book is sort of an alter ping-pong, really, between the 16th century and the early 20th century. And part of that is because I love both those periods. But the other part is that I, after about two or three years on a tutor 
or 16th century subject, I feel such violent, unfettered loathing for 16th century handwriting that I need fountain pens and typewriters. <laughs> so I returned to the 20th century. So that's how I did a book on the Titanic and one on the Queen Mother came about. And so, yeah, the new one, um, The Palace um, about Hampton Court, really is looking at different person, different room, different decade of the palace going through the centuries there. So oh, yeah. it'll be December in the US and Canada and October here in Ireland. So we are... That's That sort of brings me up. It makes me sound actually like my life had more of a plan than it really did. <laughs> Put together like that, uh, it doesn't quite seem the chaotic mess it felt living through it. But the, here we are. Here we are indeed. Uh, and we seem to be picking up a theme among 16th century historians that sure. they uh, have a tendency to go, I'm in this field because I didn't know what to do with my life and this really just happened. Yeah, and, it's, and also, I mean, it's. Um, I, I had a conversation with... A friend, she said, you know, one of the things I don't think anyone ever really gets about Anne Boleyn is that she gives off this vibe, once you know more about her, of sort of being the compulsive overachiever, where she would be looking at all of us like we were just idiots. And I said, well, you have to remember, most lives look like a mess to the person who's living them. They only look like they have a plan uh, lived from people looking from the outside in. And plus, I think a little bit of a mess always makes a life a bit more interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Which is what I tell myself when everything's on fire around me. <laughs> you cling to that. You cling to that one beacon of sanity. It's interesting, isn't it? As you think, why on earth did I wake up this morning? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So would you, following on from there then, you've come here to the Gloucester History Festival. So yeah. would you just give us your thoughts on the Gloucester History Festival and why you've come and why other yeah. people should? Well, first of all, honestly, I love it. And I, I've done, you know, you get a little bit... I suppose the best comparison is reading the tea leaves a bit when you get contacted by organisations and events. There's a, there's for, really from the, the first email, you get a bit of a sense of is this going to be a, a well-run operation or is this going to be a steaming shit show? It's one or t'other. And Always. There's well, no in-between. There's, there, there is no in-between. And there is only heaven and hell. There is no purgatory in the festival uh, circuits or event circuit. But anyway... Um, it has been so, so well organised. And actually, just from having gone over to see where I'm speaking later with um, Tracy Borman and I are doing a talk tonight, the way it is laid out to make it easier for speakers and most importantly for guests is fantastic. So I've had a great time do, you know, organising everything with them. I've come here to talk about The Palace, my new book in Hampton Court, and I am very excited to do it. Partly because I think one of the things Gloucester has, or the Gloucester History Festival has, excuse me, is an actual buzz. It's a real sense of excitement about it. And, you know, it's mm. so it seems that most of its events have sold out, which is always nice for the ego. Yeah, including uh, yours, yeah. Including, including thank God, because uh, most of them have and mine hadn't, then you have to start asking some hard questions of yourself. But yes, it's been brilliant. And I think, it, I think if you are someone who's a history fan, keep your eye out for the next the next um, iteration of this. Partly because I've also been quite, not to bite the hand that feeds me, but um, it's not just the Tudors. There's so much else mm. that they've covered and done. There was a debate, I think, last night or the night before, did Richard III do it? Which, um, I mean, I've said to you, I grew up in Belfast and I, and I, and I can't think of any argument that would have caused more tension than, <laughs> than that. <laughs> Yeah, they've had uh, their earlier today presentations on the Cold War, the yeah. Weimar years. You know, you've, you're, you've got women in intelligence of the Second World War. Yep. It, it's all here, isn't it? Fantastic. Yeah, I've had a great time. 
Okay, so we're going to dive into the anger now because I can see you're ready to you're cracking your knuckles in anticipation of this. This is yeah. I don't know if anyone's a Star Wars fan, but you know that kind of final trailer for um, Episode Nine is it the final one where the one that doesn't exist, the, the non the, the supremely non-canon one, yeah. yeah, the one that just ripped apart our dreams. When Palpatine says, "In the shadows, long have I waited," this is how I feel right now. <laughs> Okay, so we asked this one question then of all our history of ages. So you are no exception. So today, what is the one thing you wish everyone would just stop believing? Anne Boleyn was was a commoner. That drives me fucking nuts. And this, by the way, I'll be very clear about this. I know when I talk about this, I sound like a crotchety Victorian dowager who is who, who thinks that you're insulting her by calling her a colour. How dare you imply her blood was anything less than blue? That's not the issue. The issue is, it is, first of all, it's just so unbelievably Anglo-centric. It leaves out half her family. It completely misrepresents what was happening across the British Isles. And also, it's a little bit lazy. It's, it's there has been enough done that this should not still be popping around. And also, it's a very strange... Be it for me, part of the thing that drives me a little bit nuts, and I've written about the royals, and I love writing royal history, but there is a sense that when you talk about Anne Boleyn being a plucky young commoner who came from nothing and was a self-made gal, you're really kind of shitting over the history of ordinary people in this country because Anne Boleyn was not a, a normal person. Mm. She was not from a background where she endured any kind of social hardship. And the closest thing I can... It, 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 you know, Wolf Hall repopularized this. She's just a knight's daughter. And the closest thing I can say if I'm looking for a modernish comparison is Anne Boleyn is about as common as the Crawley sisters in Downton Abbey. It's not an accurate <laughs> comparison at all. And really, the one of the reasons why it, it drives me nuts is that the key to understanding her is this Irish side of her family and the, and the vast, I mean, stupefying wealth this family had. Do you think there's a couple of parallels there with, because um, we, we, if you look at the Princess of Wales now, yeah. they'll go, oh, yes, Catherine Middleton, she's a commoner, she's one of Thank those, you. she's anything but. I wrote, I wrote this at the time with the engagement. She's our first middle-class queen since Anne Boleyn. I was like, neither of them qualify as that, you fucking numbnuts. It's... Um, <laughs> It's, um, it's, oh, the reason, and also what's interesting is that I I was on Instagram for my sins the other day and it was like the clip, I don't know if you've seen this, The Good, The Bad and The Rugby, and it's, um, I haven't. Mike Tindleson down with another rugby player, but he's interviewing the Princess Royal and the Prince and Princess of Wales about sport, and it's actually quite, I mean, it's sort of more conversational than you usually see these interviews. Uh, there's also a very entertaining woman where the Princess of Wales is trying to insist, you know, I'm not really that competitive when it comes to sports. And there's this tumbleweed silence <laughs> from everyone in the room. Uh, she's like, yeah, I mean, we've never finished a game of tennis, but what does that mean? I'm like, it means that you, like, it means you have probably broken five tennis rackets. But anyway, I saw these comments underneath it and someone saying, she's put that accent on. She's trying to sound like an aristocrat. She's not an aristocrat. She's just a normal girl. I'm like, first of all, Actually, her accent isn't aristocratic. I mean, the aristocratic accent is, is still kind of absurd. It's very received mm. pronunciation in a way that hers isn't. Hers is quite easy to listen to, um, with no insult to any aristocrat listening. But the um, but what was interesting to me was she wouldn't have gone to an elocution coach for this. She wouldn't have had to up upper class herself, whatever way you want to put that. 
she went to some of the most expensive schools in this country. Her parents were, were are very successful business people. The idea that Kate Middleton somehow, you know, middle class Middleton, as people used to call her when this was all starting out, and it wasn't always said kindly, the idea that she or Anne Boleyn were from, for, were, came into a world of privilege from outside a world of privilege is just fundamentally untrue. So then, much as we can get did sidetracked yeah. onto Kate Middleton, um, could you provide us then with a brief overview of the Berlin family right. and their wider background and, and what actually makes them stand out from noble families? It's a great question because actually it's nothing and that's the point. So yeah. what happens with the Berlins is they are a moderately wealthy wool family. And, and you know, wool is, is the cornerstone mm. of English prosperity in the later Middle Ages. They come from Norfolk, Dick Whittington-esque turn of events. The founder, quote-unquote, of the Boleyn family is a guy called Geoffrey, who comes to London and becomes Lord Mayor and uses the money to parlay into acceptable society in the reign of Henry VI in the middle of the 15th century. And he has his first wife, uh, that was from a similar background to himself, sort of moderately affluent, well, affluent in Norfolk, but she dies and he later marries into the lower rungs of the aristocracy. His son, William, is then better, has aristocratic backgrounds and the, the Boleyn money. And he marries someone who will come back to, Lady Margaret Butler, who is heiress to one of the most prestigious aristocratic titles in Northern Europe, and it's the Irish Earldom of Ormond. When I was starting to do a bit of research in the Butlers, I wondered why has why has she married a Boleyn? Because at this stage, William Boleyn's not a great catch. But it's at the point at which Margaret marries him, the Butlers have very tenaciously backed the Red Rose side uh, in the Wars of the Roses, and the White Rose is blooming mm. at the heart of in the Garden of Government at the time. So the the Butlers need to sort of accept that they're just going to have to make slightly lesser marriages at this point. And it's their son, Thomas, who is the father of Anne Boleyn that brings us to, to the sort of central figure here. But he marries the Duke of Norfolk's daughter, Lady Elizabeth Howard. And so you have, by the time Anne is born at some point in the first decade of the 16th century, you have a very uh, typical mix of sort of wool money, socially aspiring former merchants with aristocratic wives. And there is a sense at which, because Anne Boleyn's career was by any status, simply because we know so much about it, I think we are dull to the sheer exceptionalism of what her career was like. There is a, an assumption and a misleading assumption that she was that exceptional, or her circumstances were. And people have presented the Boleyns as being, you know, sort of climbed like ivy through society and all the rest of it. But in fact, most aristocratic families by the, the early 1510s had had to make sacrifices during the Wars of the Roses. At, because of the Wars of the Roses, at some point you had backed the wrong side. Mm. It was constantly changing. So really they, they are not particularly exceptional. The, the, the only thing that makes them exceptional or unusual, I should say, is that Thomas Boleyn is in line to inherit an Irish earldom through his mother. And there's, and there's going to be tensions with that because he's in England and he's very far away from where this earldom will be. That makes them unusual, but it doesn't really make them exceptional, broadly speaking. Yeah. So as you're saying then, you know, throughout the Wars of the Roses, 
any aristocratic family is going to have to start making lesser marriages because yeah. most of the aristocrats are in fact dead. Yeah, it's not a bumper crop for, for the aristocracy in the late 15th century. And in fact, it's, you know, people talk about families like the Howards were, were not from a totally dissimilar background themselves. They were also Norfolk wool. The Brandons who become the, you know, the, the Dukes of Suffolk and one of them elopes with Henry VIII's sister. They have a similar background. There's not, I think I did, this is for Young and Downed and Ferris, I'm trying to remember the miles in this, so forgive me, the statistics are slightly wrong, but they're not massively off. It's something like, of the 136 aristocrats, or peers, sorry, who were alive for the opening of Parliament at the end of the Plantagenet era, the direct descendants of 13 of them were around to perform the same duties at the start of the Tudor period. So the aristocracy is just a class in flux. And there's also something that um, people tend to get a bit wrong as well, which is they seem to think there's a massive binary between aristocracy and gentry. So aristocracy, Baron, Viscount, Earl, Marquis, Duke, gentry, the, the landed families who usually the head of the family gets a knighthood at some point. There's not really a very strong binary. By, by the time of Henry VIII's accession to the throne in 1509, the aristocracy is such a small... The, the, if you class the aristocracy as just the possessors of those five titles, yeah. they're way too small a group to only marry in and amongst themselves. So there's a lot of aristocratic and or gentry intermarriage. Yeah, because if there isn't, we're going to become Habsburgs. Yeah, yeah, and Spanish Habsburgs as well. Oh, <laughs> the worst kind, the worst kind. <laughs> So you've hinted on this a bit already that many historical accounts do depict the Boleyns as rising from obscurity to higher echelons of English society. And we know that they start partway up that ladder, but they do go further up that ladder. And can you give us some details on their ascent to power, the influence that they use and exert? Great question, because it's interesting that Anne's first real intervention, people think it's getting rid of Cardinal Wolsey. It's not. The first big thing she focuses on after she becomes Henry's fiance is a dynastic matter, not a political one. So when she's still quite young, her Irish great-grandfather, the Earl of Woman, dies. No living sons, and or at least no legitimate ones. And it has been pre-assumed that the, and he assumes it as well, the late Earl, that his title will go to Anne's father, Thomas. The whole Boleyn sense of identity and place in society has been predicated on Thomas Boleyn will be the next Earl of Ormond coming through his mother. And unfortunately, the, for the butlers, they have the opposite problem to the Tudors. They have large and healthy families and often very large and healthy sons. So there are several cadet branches of this family, and one of them is in Ireland and rings the estates, and they have a um, stab-happy chap at the head of that collateral branch called Piers Rue, or Piers the Red. And he says, hold on, I've done all the work with the estate. I should get the earldom, not Thomas Boleyn. Someone should have pointed out that that's not how the aristocracy works. In fact, it's really the opposite of how it works. Mm-hmm. But it, because Piers is on the ground in Ireland, surrounding these vast and very wealthy estates, and Thomas Boleyn is at the heart of the court, where he's been a very successful diplomat, there's this push and pull for 10 years about what to do. Because Henry VIII and his chief minister, Cardinal Wolsey, do not want to fuck around with the Ormond estates. There had been a feud the century before. And when the butlers go into feud, they tend to pull everything down with them, including the Irish economy and crown income. Yeah. When they go, they go all in. Yeah, it's like a Targaryen if you watch Game of Thrones. They decide to burn everything around them. If we can't be happy, no one else can be. 
So they do not want to get peers angry and for this to start happening on the eastern seaboard of Ireland, particularly around ports like Dublin and Drogheda, where there's a big um, trade that benefits the Crown in particular. But it is very clear that Thomas Boleyn is the rightful heir to this. And English, not just English historians, many historians misrepresent this and say, you know, it was a ridiculous thing for him to think he would get it. It isn't. The Archbishopric of Dublin weighed in and said it's very clearly supposed to be Thomas Boleyn as the eldest son of the eldest daughter of the late Earl. And so this court case drags on for close to 14 years, and it's this push and pull of might and right. And when Anne rises to prominence, she finally gets it settled in her father's favour. But what's really interesting is she does two other things. The first is... Some of your listeners may know Thomas Boleyn wasn't just... I would always refer to him as Lord Ormond. Many English historians would refer to him as Lord Wiltshire, which is his English title. And some people have said that's sort of the tacky greed of the climbing, graspy Boleyns. But actually, before the Wars of the Roses, the Earls of Ormond had always been Earls of Wiltshire. And then Edward IV took the second earldom from them as punishment for um, plucking the wrong rose. So Anne gets that reunited but she persuades her cousin Piers to step aside by having a new earldom created on the periphery of the Ormond Estates called the Earldom of Ossory. So it actually shows her being much more conciliatory and kind of thinking through a compromised position than we would assume, given her reputation. So that really is how they start to, they get to where they had always hoped to be, but by having this earldom in their possession. Then the next four years is this stratospheric rise to the throne. And one of the things I found so interesting working on the Boleyns and and looking at the family was Anne's father did not want her to become involved with the king. It's one of the great enduring myths that he sort of pimped out his daughter. Mm. He really was very concerned because, again, sometimes you have to think of people as having human psychology. The guy who has slept with your daughter is not likely to promote you and want you around him all the time. In fact, he's probably not very comfortable being around you. <laughs> and so Thomas Boleyn is genuinely concerned that if Anne becomes Henry VIII's mistress, which is what Henry initially wanted, yeah. and there's no indication Henry's planning to make her queen, so there's a, there's a shelf life for this thing. He is concerned that Anne will be tossed to one side and his career will go with her. So him and his mother let her go back to Hever Castle into the depths of the countryside and they assume given how long it takes to get there from the court that that Henry's interest will die out and Anne willingly goes because she is an ambitious person she had twice been betrothed to future earls one of which was Piers' son James to kind of um, Capulet Montague this scenario and one had been the heir to the earldom of Northumberland so it's not true that royal mistresses got great marriage prizes they didn't they got minor knights because most aristocratic families did not want their bloodline, quote-unquote, sullied by someone who wasn't a virgin, even if it was the king's former mistress. Yeah. So she, for Anne, the initial proposal that he becomes, she becomes mistress is not a good one. And then Henry, in one of the, his great um, vault faces, says, well, well, I'll marry you then. And that real, it's really this extraordinary, unlikely set of coincidences that propels her from you know, relatively high-ranking but not particularly prominent courtier to Earl's daughter and from Earl's daughter to Queen. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. 
United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. So, there is an l- awful lot of books written about Elizabeth, the daughter of Anne Boleyn. But there is another Elizabeth there, isn't there? There is the mother, a lesser-known figure in history, but undoubtedly had an impact on her and the rest of her children's upbringing. So what can you tell us about her and her role in the family? It's interesting because she really only flashes into the sources, like sort of comet. She streaks across the source and then she's gone again for a while. Lady Elizabeth Howard, again, a bit like the Boleyns or the Butlers, she had known... The, the pinprick of the Wars of the Roses, if you like, mm. except her family had been Yorkists and had pretty tenaciously clung to the cause of Richard III. So her life had started where everything looked set for the Howards, and then her teenage years had been passed watching the family rebuild their credit at court and in high society post-Bosworth. So what we know of Elizabeth is she has this childhood of, again, mixed privilege, a bit like the butlers had had when the, for back in the Lancastrians. We do know she's very beautiful. That turns out she, there's poetry written about her and that there's, there's comments on how physically beautiful Elizabeth Boleyn she becomes, mm. is. Uh, we know that she lost at least two children, uh, one called Thomas and one called Henry. There's a quite moving little brass cross on the floor of the family's former church at St. Peter's in, in Ahiver in Kent where the, the baby's body was put next to the altar. So she has three children who live uh, Mary, George and Anne what order they are in is is contested and debated tentatively using the sources but I don't think it's a huge leap to say Anne seems to have been the favourite for the mother, they are very close when Anne is fretting about what the king's attention to her early on will do to her reputation she seems to seek out her mother's company as as the as the guiding light. And in fact, initially, when she's trying to wriggle out of Henry's attention to her, she says she will only come back to court if her mother is allowed to constantly chaperone her. And then there's an interesting point towards the end of Anne's life, which is quite moving, which is when Anne has been arrested and is taken into the Tower of London, one of the comments she makes is that she is concerned... That, that, that this news will kill her mother. And Anne had been worrying about her mother's health for really the last, what turned out to be the last year of Anne's own life. And, and the quote in the sources is that um, the Countess of Ormond, as Elizabeth is by then, is sore diseased of the cough. It may have been tubercular because she actually dies only two years after her daughter and son's execution. But Elizabeth really comes, you know, Elizabeth is the linchpin to this unsteady alliance between the Boleyns and the Howards. She certainly is by the a very loving and steadying figure in her younger daughter's life. And obviously there's the, the tragedy of of her ill health at the same time that two, two of her children are executed within two days of each other. So that's really what we know of Elizabeth Boleyn. And then probably the most overlooked figure in the ascent to prominence uh, that you mentioned earlier, and so we'll come back to it. So let's come back to yeah. it. Lady Margaret Boleyn, the grandmother. Now, who was she and why does she matter? Lady Margaret Boleyn is exactly the kind of batshit I love in history. That's, she's my sweet spot. 
So Lady <laughs> Margaret Butler, or and then who later became Lady Margaret Boleyn, is born in Kilkenny Castle in Ireland, which sort of looms like a gormenghast at the heart of the old Butler estates. It is not subtle. None of the Butler homes are subtle. Mm. subtle. They're, they're somewhere between a fortress and a carnival palace. They're fantastic. She is, she sees the earldom bounce through uh, two of her uncles and then to her father, the Wool Earl, as he's called, you know, sort of like yeah. Tywin Lannister. Fabulously wealthy, just gold, good plated everything. But the first, the first two uncles, to give you an idea of the butlers, one of the uncles is said to be, even Edward IV says, my Lord of Warmond is either the most beautiful man in Europe, so stunningly handsome. Fortunately, he knows it. And during the Wars of the Roses, he is constantly terrified that someone's going to swing a sword and ruin the moneymaker that is his face. So he's um, described as beautiful but not brave, and in fact takes to, during the battles in the Wars of the Roses, Lord Ormond leaves monks and um, cowls in ditches near the battlefields if he needs to hop into a disguise and escape, if things go wrong. He is, um, fate eventually catches up with him, and then the very clever brother, it sounds like a parable, the beautiful brother, then the clever brother, who is a polyglot, speaks multiple languages, falls in love with a young Irishman he can't marry, and later in his life becomes a, a diplomat and ambassador, and dies on pilgrimage to the Holy Land. And then it falls to Margaret's father. So Margaret really comes of age at a time when the butler the butler's glory day seemed to have been behind them. They, they seemed to have backed the wrong side. The butlers really rose to prominence in Ireland in the reign of uh, King John. They were, they were the pincherna, the butler to John, and they came over with the, the um, English intervention in the 1170s and were sent south, where they established this vast fiefdom that is perfect for raising sheep, and it's also perfect for the trade routes between Ireland, Wales, and France, and it's also perfect for salmon fishing. So they get a colossal amount of, of money. One of her ancestors was a patroness of Geoffrey Chaucer, said to be more beautiful than the sun. They held the but first... But not more beautiful than, than Lord Ormond. No, well, no one's more beautiful than the Lord Ormond. Even in his monk's coil, as he ran screaming from the battlefields, he was a bit of a dish. So, uh, but Margaret Butler comes from this very literate family, very wealthy family. What's really interesting when you look at the descriptions of the Butler women and the men, given what we know of Anne Boleyn, and people are trying to figure out her appearance, they always say the butlers were noted for red hair in the men, dark hair in the women, really interested in the arts, and they had an Olympian ability to hold a grudge, which is basically Athelin. <laughs> uh, and her grandmother has the same thing, and she really makes it her life's mission that her father's earldom will go to her son. And she gives Thomas Boleyn all the advice he will need, and she really does not want to, to, to go to her cousin Piers, who she loathes and despises. Then there is, and also again, this quite touching detail. Margaret Boleyn, after spending this, you know, fab, you know, this lifetime intriguing and moving and shaking in country society and the, the dying days, the wars of the roses, there is a, uh, a court case held in Kent called about the insanity of my lady Margaret Boleyn. And actually it's dementia. And Thomas Boleyn brings her to Hever Castle, which is beautiful even today, and to live with, with them. And she, she fades really away. So she's not at Anne Boleyn's coronation. She's kept in Kent and the family do visit her regularly. But she actually ends up outliving her eldest son and she sees the Ormond. We think she probably might still have been compassmentous when they got the earldom, but it was a, it was a long decline for her. So in many ways, it's it's a story of, of that sort of improbably, fantastically bolshy aristocrats, if that's not an oxymoron. But then there's also this incredibly human story. And it is quite rare, Paul, to hear of anyone suffering from dementia. They don't, it, it, 
know, yeah. for the symptoms to, to show through. And I find it actually really... I, the idea of Thomas Boleyn being caring enough to make sure she was well looked after and there was a staff around her and he brought her home, that I find really touching. Yeah, a man, a man that does that for his mother does not pimp out his daughter, does Exactly, he? and this is the thing, though. You sort of... And what I find is... I'm sure you... Sorry, I'm sure you find this as well with so many different parts of history, and your listeners will as well. Some people almost take it personally when you say, well, this is bullshit, and, you, and I'm not on this podcast, and like, finally letting my rage flag <laughs> flap freely in the wind. Um, I'm trying to be more tactful than that, because I think most people... I think most people studying history come from a really good place. But people become wedded to the story. People become wedded to this to this particular version of events that they have. And Thomas Boleyn is the bad guy. That you know, Thomas Boleyn is the archetypal horrible father, like a moral monster. And when you say, "Well, it's more complicated than that," and it, and he doesn't seem to have been this person, some people take it a little bit thick. They don't like it at all to have to have a well established narrative flipped over a bit. So it's interesting to see how people react. So going back to this Irish earldom, yes, okay. We've seen how that advances the nature of the Berlins as a family. How does that shape Anne's early career? Completely, and no one will listen. So, <laughs> listening. Oh, right. listening. Draw near your wireless set, listeners, because this is important. What I find fascinating was all these things that we could not explain with her career. And there were all these sort of half-baked answers of why she came back from France where she was educated when she did. It's all to do with the butlers. It's all to do with the butlers. So we could never really understand why she was given this idea that she was a commoner and came from a middle-ranking family. Why did the Habsburg court allow her to join their household as a young girl? Because she come, because she's considered as coming from a a family as high-ranking as the Brandons, the Brandon girl joins at the same time. So it's not exceptional for the Habsburgs to to allow her to do this. They actually bend the rules a little bit for the ages of both girls, which would again suggest that there is a high-ranking element here, and both their fathers Mm. were diplomats as well. Then there is the question of why does she come back in 1522? And there have been all these reasons, oh, there was war developing. They wouldn't start for another year. They didn't bring any other English girls home. The reason they bring her home in 1522 is because Wolsey decides we cannot let this Piers and Thomas cousins feud over the earldom that I mentioned earlier drag on again. It's getting to the stage where someone's going to fire a shot. So he decides to broker a deal that Thomas Boleyn is supremely unenthusiastic about because it's to his demerit, where he says, Piers, you get to keep the earldom for the rest of your life and it will pass to your son, James. Send him to my household at Hampton Court, please. Thomas, James is going to marry one of your daughters, and that way we'll merge the two families and the earldom will stay in your line of the family eventually. Now, clearly this is not in the Boleyn's best interest, but they have the king and the cardinal breathing down their neck. I have a theory. They first thought this idea in 1519, and then all of a sudden Thomas's eldest daughter, Mary Boleyn, is married in 1520, very quickly. To, thought? Oh, no, oh, we don't have anyone in the country who's single and free. The plan's gone. What a bummer. So after Mary Boleyn is married, then there is an explicit order given, then bring the unmarried sister. That's who we're, you know, James Butler is told you are not going home to Ireland until you agree to marry Anne Boleyn. So she's brought back. That's why she's brought back in 1522 to marry James. And then the Boleyns was where this fabulous foot dragging are finding all these reasons and delaying it and stringing it out. And they managed to do this for long enough. There's talk of Anne marrying the Earl of Northumberland. 
I wonder, did she make a play or was there an element to which the Boleyns were delighted to see her becoming close to the future Earl of Northumberland? Because if she marries him, they, they've lo- then this idea of them losing out by the enforced marriage to James Butler is gone too. People have often said um, that Thomas Boleyn got the Viscounty of Rochford because it was part of him, quote-unquote, pimping out his daughters. Rochford was an old subsidiary title tied to the Butler family. So I think they give him this in 1525 because they're still trying to find some way to negotiate through this earldom. We'll give you Viscount as one below an earl. Rochford was below Ormond. I think the English government are trying to do something here. Everything about this family centres back to this, this legal dispute over the earldom. And so in terms of shaping her entire career up to and until the moment Henry, in fact, actually after, but really up until the moment she breaks onto the stage of history with a capital H as we know it, the whole thing is explicable through the butler lens. And I am aware I sound like someone who maybe is a butler or is <laughs> working for them. It's not. It's just irritating because... Or the, wants to be one. Or wants... I mean, and one of my friends, he's like very distantly related to them, but he says, you know you kind of sound like you're the family spokesman. And I really, the reason why I get so angry about it as well is they are not, the, I say Kilkenny looms like Gormangas. They're not, they're not fucking hiding. They are such a prominent family. Their annual income is 2,100, which makes them wealthier than most families in, in the British Isles. The extent of the influence that they have, the fear that Wolsey and Henry VIII feel when this earldom is, is jittering, it's such an important story. It's so blindingly obvious in the sources. And I, you get the sense that because they're in Ireland, they just get shunted to one side. I mean, you talk to some historians and they don't know these people existed. Mm. And they're wealthier than the Dukes of Norfolk. It's, it's a very odd thing when they spend so much time talking about the great-grandfather who was once a wool merchant and not about the great-grandparents who were quasi-ruling Southern Ireland. It's just a bizarre, not bizarre, I'm on History Rage, it's a fucking irritating way of looking at this particular period of history because you're missing out not just on an incredible story, but you're also, the answers are right in front of us. It's right there if you can look at this family and stop seeing her as this um, adventure, adventurous adventuress who claws her way through with tenacity and grit towards the throne. Anne Boleyn is born not to the silver spoon in her mouth. There's a whole set of monogrammed family cutlery, you know, waiting for her. She is someone who benefits immeasurably from the presumption and assumption that her father will be the next Earl of Ormond. And that launches her in... And, I'm, and I do not say this to detract at all from her personal strengths she is a very intelligent person she's very she's incredibly well read she's very determined she's charismatic a lot of those are butler traits but she also is someone who is helped by the family that she's born into not hindered by it and we're both doing a disservice to irish history we're doing a disservice to the totality of british history we're doing a service to disservice to Amberlynn. And we're also doing a disservice to the to the actual challenges of some of these families coming up and struggling in the Tudor period. So there are four kinds of history that are just being fundamentally misrepresented if you don't look at this particular aspect of it. And thus endeth a mini little sermon. <laughs> <laughs> well, just to wrap things off then, it's, it, it's impossible to avoid the execution when yeah. you are talking about Berlin. So I'm not going to avoid it. 
But Anne's downfall has been played out many times in a wide, wide array of media. But what happens to the rest of the family? What were the consequences for the Berlins after kind of Anne's arrest and execution and so forth? What happens there? So for, from the dynastic perspective we've just talked about, actually the really big disaster for them is her brother's execution when he's um, framed on a charge of incest and mm-hmm. dies two, year, two days earlier because he's the only boy. So that earldom... Small family, big yeah, problem. Yeah, exactly. Brilliant way to put it. Small, small family, big problem. And Thomas Boleyn is an older gentleman at this stage. This earldom that they have fought and scraped to win, there is now no heir in the Boleyn line. So what happens is it ends up going back to Pierce after Thomas Boleyn dies in 1539, which means Pierce because of Anne's compromise negotiations with him in 1529, Piers Butler has two earldoms. He's Earl of Ormond and Ossory. And that stays with the family. So James Butler, who she could have married, had things gone differently, succeeds to the earldom. Very prominent man, very skilled warrior, potentially poisoned by one of Henry VIII's underlings, or even with Henry VIII's orders. He eats porridge, and him, he dies. So it's done that two other dinner guests and 12 people get very sick. In 1546. But the, the butlers continue to flourish. Um, if there is a scandal or political drama between about 15, no, say 1270 and somewhere around 1906, a butler will have been near it in Irish history. So they, they, they do fine. The Boleyn line, however, is really decimated by this. There is the loss of the heir and there is also the loss really of de facto the head of the family in Anne. And there's no possibility of recovering from a blow that severe. So Elizabeth Boleyn does not long survive her daughter. It's probable that Anne was right and that a mixture of grief and this pre-existing health condition led to her dying whilst visiting her, her, her Howard family in London in 1538. She is buried, if anyone is interested in some sightseeing. You can see her gravestone in the um, Garden Museum in Lambeth next to the Archbishop's Palace that so she was yeah. buried there. Thomas Boleyn has a very fine, lovely brass grave in the family burial plot, the family church at St. Peter's at Hever. He dies in 1539. The lone survivor is Mary Boleyn, or Mary Stafford, as she has been then. She's married a, a member, a minor member of the gentry. Unfortunately, the king really sticks the knife in one last time, and because the earldom is defunct, and there's a lot of its, the former Boleyn possessions are all tied up in this butler earldom, he gives some to the butlers, but he takes a lot for himself. So, for instance, Hever Castle, he gives to his fourth wife, Anne of Cleves, as part of the divorce settlement of 1540. Mary gets little bits and pieces, and some of her children flourish at the court of Elizabeth I. But it's interesting, when it comes to any um, Elizabethan Irish policies, when it comes to the government of Elizabeth as Queen of Ireland, the first person she always goes to is her butler cousin, the Earl of Ormond, to, to get him to do her dirty work for her. So there, is, there, are, there are long-term consequences of this and that kind of the kinship that's so important in Tudor history, but for the, that immediate Boleyn family, it is like, a, I mean, someone once compared it to a Greek tragedy, and it's not far off. They yeah. are in, in, in the scale. It's sort of what we were just saying, that I used to sort of champion Game of Thrones to people and say you should watch it, if only to understand the shock of things like Ed Stark or Marjorie Tyrell's downfall, because it's medieval-esque. But we know these stories about medieval politics so well that we're no longer shocked you can't mm-hmm. avoid Anne Boleyn's execution. And actually, you have to have this punching shock, like a punch in the throat to understand how rare what happened to her and her family was. So there is a, 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 an extraordinary 
collapse of the family fortune in the spring of 1536. And within seven years, the entire immediate line is dead. And I, and yeah, and I don't have a happier ending than that. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Gareth. Do you, do you feel better? I feel reborn. Good. Good. Well, we will get you back on at some point to, uh, to engage about Catherine Howard. Because <laughs> uh, uh, I would very much like that race to go on since we're, you know, covering Howard's. Sure, why not? Indeed. So if you'd like to know more about this, ladies and gentlemen, then we are going to have links to Gareth Books uh, in the History Rage bookshop. And you can follow Gareth on Twitter at GarethRussell1. Um, but once again, thank you for bringing 500 years of rage to our podcast. <laughs> You could not need to thank me less. I owe you a thank you card. This has been brilliant. (laughs) Well, ladies and gentlemen, I do hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you've not made it to the festival this year, then it is on again twice in 2024. And those dates are the 12th to the 14th of April and 7th to the 22nd of September 2024. And you can get on the mailing list at www.glosterhistoryfestival.co.uk. If you're enjoying us, then please do subscribe to us on Patreon. Your £5 per month will get you early episodes, three months in advance and ad-free, invite to put questions to future guests, and of course, the coveted History Rage mug. But until our next Rage, from all of us here, stay angry. Bye-bye.